according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 4 is our starting text this morning, verses 13. on verse 17 this morning. I think we covered the first uh, three points of this outline last week, but I want to make sure we're solid on the gospel of the kingdom here this morning. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Spirit, equipped to handle spiritual truth, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, you are merciful and we rejoice in your mercies that are renewed day by day. We thank you for the grace that has provided for us to be here this morning, and we ask for your hand and blessing upon our study. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, in dealing with the move to Capernaum, the third point in the Galilean ministry in the harmony of the Gospels, this is a passage that may seem to be very uh, short, might be just in passing, say, okay, he was rejected at Nazareth, he moves to Capernaum, big deal, what happens when he gets there? You know, he's going to call his first four disciples and call them to be fishers of men. And I want to see how this works. I want to see Zebedee left behind in the boat and all this other stuff. All right, well, we'll get into that. I, I imagine next week we're going to be there. Um, but as we read through Matthew chapter 4, we recognize that in this passage, verses 13 through 17 or 12 through 17, however you want to break down the context of Matthew 4, um, the extensive citation from the book of Isaiah makes it clear that this is a significant event, that this is for prophetic reasons, this is for eschatological reasons, this is for um, a variety of reasons in the unfolding plan of God the Father to remind us that, yes, he has um, called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as his steward uh, people, as his covenant nation, and yes, salvation is of the Jews. However... The Gentiles are not being abandoned. And the, the vast light, the great light that is to shine upon the Gentiles is significant. And the role of Galilee being allowed to be trodden under for all this time, to be dominated by Gentiles and populated by Gentiles, rather than, uh, rather than that being something negative or something that is a mark of derision, should be something that could be looked at in terms of a blessing. Remember, our God is the one who turns cursing into blessing, who takes circumstances that may not be good, but he works them together for good. And so the fact that Galilee is a, is a region that's blended between Jews and Gentiles is a good thing. It allows for the gospel to be proclaimed. It allows for not just the Jewish people, but for all the Gentiles. And I think one of the things, and I probably referred to it in the past, but the, the mystery of godliness as we have it in Timothy, in terms of, uh, let me find it here for you, First Timothy chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 3, in verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And this is something that I referred to a couple of times already in the Life of Christ series, one that I think we will probably end up doing a more significant study on. But it says, 1 Timothy 3.16, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh. All right, and this starts to discuss the first advent of Jesus Christ. And this is our uh, a hymn for the church age, so to speak. 
He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the Gentiles or nations. Same word for both Gentiles and nations. And it's really a translator's choice how that's rendered. Believed on in the cosmos, taken up in glory. And so there's work to be done here. But this becomes a song. This becomes a hymn for the church age, uh, representative of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And it was not just... Doing miracles, multiplying bread, walking on water, calming the waves. As a matter of fact, miracles aren't even mentioned there. It was the fact that he was testified. He was manifested to all the different realms, angelic and human. And within the human realm, Jew and Gentile. See, So some of these are concepts that I think we'll be referring to or coming back to again and again uh, at various stages of the life of Christ uh, harmony. But now as we examine it from Matthew 4, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And this is um, the uh, citation coming from the book of Isaiah. And I hope, uh, given the, the work that we did on it last week and what we're going to do on it again today, we can recognize the impact of of Old Testament prophecies looking ahead to the coming Christ and the fact that the the clear vision we have of first advent and second advent didn't exist back then that for isaiah and jeremiah and ezekiel and the prophets that were looking forward that's all they were doing was looking forward with no clear understanding that or not even uh i say clear understanding how about a fuzzy understanding they didn't even have that that there were two advents indeed that they were that they were looking at so let's review it again here this morning The Capernaum headquarters was established in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The Capernaum headquarters was established in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So let's turn over to Isaiah 9 and once again make sure we're solid on this. Isaiah chapter 9. We did this uh, a couple weeks ago in Isaiah 61. I imagine we'll be doing it again and again and again, which is a good thing. That's the entire reason why the learning process is indeed Zakhnir Sham, Zakhnir Sham, here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. All right. Somebody the other day mentioned something to me that where the light had dawned on them and finally something had made sense and something they'd heard like 50 times over the last 20 years and then all of a sudden it was clicking, right? And that's a good thing. I appreciated hearing that because it means that repeating something 50 times over 20 years might be what it takes (laughs) for things to sink in. All right, Isaiah chapter 9. Now, recognize that this is uh, really a time for encouragement, a time when the northern kingdom has been swept away, the southern kingdom is being threatened, uh, the king is in danger of losing hope, and um, Isaiah has a ministry of encouragement to say, no, let's stay faithful, let's serve the Lord, he will protect us, he will deliver us. And uh, on through these early chapters here, even um, in the process of encouraging the king in present troubles, Isaiah is going to be giving promises and prophecies that point ahead quite a bit further down the road, see. And uh, the one thing I didn't spotlight last week was that I intended to was in Isaiah chapter 7. So on your way to chapter 9, just stop off and glance at chapter 7. 
context for this in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah. All right. So if you've got your uh, life of uh, Christ, the genealogy of Christ memorized, you know precisely where we are then. Reason, the king of Aram and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. All right. So here's the northern kingdom of Israel conspiring with Syrians to come down now and attack the southern kingdom of Judah. When it was reported to the house of David, saying the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shir Jashub, at the end of the conduit. He's going to give him a message. And the message is in verse four, take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint hearted. All right. Quite often, the ministry of shepherding is a ministry to just simply slow things down, calm things down. Don't panic. All right. Think it through. Trust in the Lord. Claim the promises. Faith rest. And it may be that the person that you're reminding knows the doctrine. They have the knowledge. They just need to be reminded. They need to be encouraged. They need to be strengthened. And so that's what happens here. And um, he's even invited to ask for a sign. It says in verse 10, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz saying, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as shale or high as heaven. Now, under normal circumstances, we are not to put the Lord our God to the test. But here, the Lord is inviting Ahaz to do just that. Saying, go ahead, I'm giving you permission. The normal rule is, don't tempt me this way, or don't, you know, throw the fleece out there. But even with Gideon, he honored the fleece routine, okay? Here is the Lord saying, giving him permission, ask for a sign. Just dream up the most incredible miracle you can imagine. And God said, I'll make it come to pass so that your faith might be strengthened. Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. (laughs) Then he said, listen now, house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? See, he's given the opportunity to do this and he won't do it. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. See, here's Isaiah giving comfort and encouragement to King Ahaz for present circumstances. Ahaz has an opportunity to request a miracle to enforce his faith for the present struggle, but he won't do it. So, through Isaiah then, the Lord says, all right, tell you what, I'll give you a sign myself. And here's the sign. But it wasn't a sign for this present circumstance. It was a much greater sign, a sign for a much greater deliverance, not only rescuing from uh, a, an Aramaic king, but how about redeeming the human race from the slave market of sin? There is an even greater problem. <laughs> All right. So I just want you to I, I'm spending the time on this so that we can see the nature of prophecy that sometimes is focused on the immediate such as Isaiah's day, such as King Ahaz, sometimes is looking in the far-flung future. (laughs) Boy, I say that three times fast. The far-flung future, all right? And that's what's happening here. In this case, it's jumping out 700 years, all right? Now, Ahaz may not be worked up over 700 years from now. He's worried about here and now. (laughs) But the promise is... 
No, down the road. Okay, And in so many ways, you and I can claim a similar concept in our own faith, in our own faith rest life. I mean, isn't it encouraging to know that God the Father has a grace eternal plan of the ages that spans from Alpha to Omega? He's got the plan worked out that includes the vast scope of everything. And so, what's today compared to all that? Right? Today, compared to all that, is pretty insignificant. So why am I so worked up about today? This test I'm going through, financial, marriage, health, whatever, it's momentary. Momentary light afflictions. It's a tiny little part of the overall picture. That ought to be an encouragement. See, and Ahaz had the opportunity to ask for a miracle for just a tiny little deliverance here. Wouldn't do it. Instead, he's given a promise for a much greater deliverance. As the virgin conceives and bears a child, he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. Anyway, we uh, dealt with some of this already when we were dealing with the virgin birth much earlier in the life of Christ's study. But now, from chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, we're still dealing in the context here of Judah... Being fearful, needing to be encouraged. And uh, particularly as um, these uh, Assyrians come in. In chapter 8 we find uh, that uh, Isaiah is prophesying the captivity of the northern kingdom. And uh, that's why he names this son here, uh, swift is the booty, sweet, uh, speedy is the prey. And uh, the things that happen here, maher shalal hashbaz. In chapter 8. If you've never had a verse-by-verse study of Isaiah, I'm dreaming of doing it someday. <laughs> I'm dreaming of doing it. But if uh, 1 Corinthians is a five-year book, I can only imagine that Isaiah would take about the next 30 years to probably track down verse-by-verse. But it's so powerful. You can teach the whole Bible in the book of Isaiah. All right. Anyway, there's uh, Maher Shalal Hashbaz there and the prophecy of the captivity of the northern kingdom. But then in chapter 9, there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. See, carrying away the northern kingdom's a bad thing. Gentiles coming in and occupying the land is a bad thing. And when the Jews are allowed to return back, when the Persians say, okay, go on back, and they are forced to live intermingled with a bunch of Gentiles, that's not a good thing. But it's going to work together for good. It's going to provide for the, um, the, uh, the mission field when Christ is walking this earth, when Christ is proclaiming the light of the gospel of, of the kingdom of heaven at hand, when the apostles take that message forth, it's going to provide for the founding of the dispensation of the church which is going to be neither Jew nor Gentile, it's going to work together in an amazing way. And if it was human beings putting this plan together, they wouldn't have done it this way. (laughs) See, human beings would have driven all the Gentiles out and kept the Jewish land a Jewish land. In any event, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. You know, the, the idea of walking in darkness. The fact is that ever since the call of Abraham, it's been the Jewish people that have had the oracles of God entrusted to them. What is the advantage of the Jew? Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. 
the Jewish people are the ones that were given the Bible. Even when there were Gentile prophets like Balaam, for example, his oracles were recorded in the Jewish texts. Even when there's a great Gentile patriarch like Job, his narrative was recorded in the Hebrew text. All right. When uh, Gentiles had tremendous revivals, those prophetic ministries were the result of Jewish prophets like Jonah and his ministry to Nineveh. The Jewish people were the stewards of God's plan and program during their, uh, during their dispensation. And so the Gentiles are indeed in darkness. Salvation is of the Jews. If they want information, they've got to go to the Jewish people. But now the greatest light imaginable is coming, and that is Jesus Christ. If uh, you want expanded information on this, uh, uh, good idea to be listening to Glenn Carnegie's message in the book of Hebrews. Because God, after he spoke to the fathers long ago in many portions in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us through his son. The greatest revelation of light is Jesus Christ. All right, Isaiah 9, 3, you shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Now, you'll notice that these, this part is not quoted by Matthew. Matthew stopped his citation um, after verse 2. Matthew did not grab the rest of this Isaiah 9 quotation. Matthew did not incorporate the promise about breaking the yoke in verse 4. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their sho- on their shoulders. See, because the remainder of this context, the remainder of the promise in Isaiah 9 is looking forward to second advent. is looking forward to victory at Armageddon. It's looking forward to the conquering king, not the humble servant. And so Matthew in the citation, if you just... You know, do the best you can with paper Bibles, but, you know, have a finger at Isaiah 9 and a finger at Matthew 4 and and uh, go back and forth and recognize where the uh, quotation ends. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. Those who were sitting in the land of shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And that's where it stops. Matthew does not go on to give the, the longer Isaiah quotation. He can't. That's not the part that's getting fulfilled. That's all second advent. That's all waiting. Okay? So we want to understand this. We've seen it already in Isaiah 61. We've seen it now in Isaiah 9. We've seen similar shades of this in Isaiah 7 with the uh, virgin shall conceive prophecy. I hope that uh, the more and more that we see this throughout the life of Christ, we will uh, start to recognize the, uh, the nature of prophecy. It's going to be vital, not only for our Life of Christ series, but for prophetic studies as well all right because when you see uh when you see an overall prophecy get excerpted all right and if i can just simply draw this for you when you see okay here's prophecy okay and you see it gets excerpted you see that it um it has what I call a prophetic shift, and this part here is becomes first advent. And then the part that follows, we'll just put it in blue, we'll call it second advent. It's very important for us to recognize how these things were fulfilled. Alright? Because 
the danger is, and people that get involved in prophetic studies, is that they start to allegorize, they start to spiritualize the language, they start to take things figuratively and say, well, it's not really going to happen that way. It won't be literal. It's symbolic. It's figurative. All right? It's important that we recognize that everything here was literally fulfilled. When it says a virgin conceives and bears a son, guess what? A virgin conceives and bears a son. When it says they pierced my hands and my feet, guess what? A thousand years later, Jesus Christ had his hands and his feet pierced. See, when it says a light shall rise in the, in the darkness, guess what happened? A light rised in the darkness. That's Jesus Christ in his Galilean ministry. All right. When um, he's reading Isaiah 61 and he stops and he rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, sits down and he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. We're observing in every single instance a literal fulfillment of the prophecies. Jesus Christ literally came. He was a literal babe in the manger. He did die on the cross. Everything happened in terms of the first advent prophecies literally. Okay? We must be careful. And in, I'm not speaking to we, Austin Bible Church, we. I'm just talking about we... In general, because believers without verse-by-verse verse systematic line-upon-line teaching will get confused. But we must understand the second advent prophecies literally as well. It's not fair to the text to take these literally and these figuratively. But so many people try to. All right. And this is why the whole study on prophetic shifts is important, why the whole study on um, the nature of excerpting a prophecy for a first advent fulfillment while, remain, while leaving the remainder for uh, future fulfillment is very important. Because if, if we were talking about separate prophecies then it might be appropriate to say, okay, we can. this one's going to be literally fulfilled, this one's going to be figuratively fulfilled. That might be a legitimate claim. But we're not talking about two separate prophecies. We're talking about one prophecy. The Isaiah 61 prophecy. The Isaiah 9 prophecy. All right? And the fact that it is one prophecy that is um, excerpted, that may not be the best word. I'm just trying to explain it this morning. But the fact that it's one prophecy gives us the understanding that we can't switch from a literal to a figurative in the same prophecy. And I hope that makes sense. If this uh, first element that has its first advent fulfillment was literal, then the second part of it, that's the second advent, must also be literal. In other words, we are looking for Jesus Christ to descend with a shout. Why? Because the Bible says that he will descend with a shout. Okay, And we view that as literal, not figurative. When it says he will be seated on the throne of David, I believe it means he's going to be seated on the throne of David. Why? Well, because it says he's going to be seated on the throne of David. And I take that literally, not figuratively. That Jesus Christ will rule this world from his throne in Jerusalem. I believe that's literal, not figurative. But all too many write off the second advent prophecies as being figurative and they substitute the church for Christ and they basically come up with an all-millennial conclusion that there is no second advent, there is no 
parousia. There is no, uh, you know, the kingdom of heaven is going to be effectively the church evangelizing the world, turning it into a better place and so forth. And that's unfortunately Catholic theology, Reformed theology, and probably majority opinion within Christendom today. All right. That's why I'm taking the time to make sure we're solid on this. Under point three, in Isaiah 9, we observe a similar prophetic shift to that which was observed in Isaiah 61. First Advent and Second Advent fulfillments are presented together and must be rightly divided. All right, that's be diligent to present yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We have a child born, a son given, the light shining, the yoke breaking. And hopefully no one here is confused. The child born, first advent. We're not, Jesus is not going to go back through a, a virgin birth manger scene right before Armageddon. Okay, He's done that once. He's never doing that again. When he comes back for second advent, he is dressed for battle on a horse to conquer the forces of darkness. So, a child born, a son given. The light shining, the yoke breaking. The full uh, passage of, of what we deal with in Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, and really the verses that follow with uh, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty Father, the titles that come there. Second Advent and their fulfillment. Now, for today, the preaching ministry in Galilee was a kingdom of heaven at hand warning for repentance. The preaching ministry in Galilee was a kingdom of heaven at hand warning. Probably should have put that all in quotes. Kingdom of heaven at hand warning. What kind of warning was it? It was a kingdom of heaven at hand warning. Kingdom of heaven at hand warning. Be very similar to a pastor today who gives an imminent rapture warning who gives a warning message that says you're sleeping you're falling short you're walking in darkness the rapture can be today the rapture can be at 10:30 you've only got 2 minutes left all right it's a, it's a, an exhortation or admonishment pertaining to imminency and it's a goad, it's a prompt, it's a, it's a wake-up call to believers that you don't have a whole lot of time. I wish I could remember that drill sergeant's name. I had a drill sergeant in Fort McClellan, Alabama, who taught us how to throw hand grenades. And he really instilled the sense of urgency when you're throwing hand grenades uh, you have you have all the time in the world before you pull the pin, <laughs> but after you pull the pin, you still have time so long as your hand is gripped on what's called the spoon. Okay, the pin basically holds the spoon in place. When you pull the pin out, then it's your hand holding the spoon in place. But when you release that spoon, and the pin's gone and the spoon goes flying, at that moment. You've got a sense of urgency <laughs> because there's no putting that spoon back on and there's no sticking that pin back in. So at that point of time, as soon as that spoon is released, you don't have a whole lot of time. And this guy was from Kentucky or somewhere in South Carolina. He was, he was hillbilly. And he would explain to us, 
You don't have a whole lot of time. And he would say that sentence about 12 different ways with an emphasis on different words each time he would say it. Never forget him. But what a concept for imminency. What a concept for the rapture of the church. We don't have a whole lot of time. We have today. We may not even have all of today. We may just have the morning. We may just have part of the morning. We may not make it till noon. That's the sense of urgency we ought to have in terms of church-age believers walking in the dispensation of the church. Well, the similar aspect of imminency was in terms of the kingdom of heaven at hand messages. And that's what we have to get across this morning as well. In fact, Sunday night's message in the book of Hebrews presented that also with uh, much of the material that Glenn Carnegie was teaching and trying to communicate the sense of imminency that the Jewish people should have had during the life of Christ. All right. So we return now to Matthew chapter 4. We look at it in verse 17. From that time. From that time. That is, it began here with the arrival in Capernaum and it proceeded for an unstated period of time after that. It won't be forever. We're going to see here this morning when this message concludes. But from that time, beginning with the arrival in Capernaum and throughout the Galilean ministry, let's just say for now, um, Jesus began to preach, not evangelize, preach. That is, to proclaim, to be the herald, to be the announcer of God's word, and say, repent, change your thinking. Why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand, present, imminent, ready to be revealed. Now, there's five subpoints under that, and we're going to get through these five in this session, even if I have to keep you here till prayer meeting tonight. This was John the Baptizer's message as well in Matthew chapter 3. So just turn back a chapter. And we'll see that this was the baptizer's message as well. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in the context of this, I hope we recognize that there are those who need to hear this message. And there are those who do not need to hear this message. In fact, there are those who are not supposed to receive this message. The warning is not for them. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You say, well, what's wrong with that? Who would be excluded from that message? And really, who would be excluded from any Bible message? Stop and consider. As we proclaim the teaching of God's word, is, who is this message for? In terms of pastors and local churches that teach the word of God, who is their message for? Well, Ephesians says it's for the Equipping of the saints for the work of service. Bible teaching, the ministry of the Word of God by pastor teachers is for the saints. It is not for unbelievers. That's casting pearls before swine. What does the unbeliever need? He needs the gospel. He needs a believer to present gospel information to him. Let's not confuse evangelism with edification. And what's going on here is the edification ministry towards believers, the repentant warning towards believers, those that have an ear to hear. You'll notice all Jerusalem was going out to him. It says in verse 5, 
Matthew 3, 5. Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming from baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Now, these, this is the reference I was telling you about, about those who were not given the warning. Those that were not the intended audience. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? They are not the recipients of the warning. As a matter of fact, they are the objects of the wrath. When it comes to the wrath of God that is going to be bestowed upon unbelievers in the great tribulation. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If, in fact, you are born-again believers, regenerate believers, then you should be bearing such fruit. And it goes on. Anyway, we detailed much of this in previous messages as it pertained to the ministry of John the Baptizer. But let's just remind ourselves of it this morning, that it is a warning message given to believers in particular that aren't living with a concept of imminency. They're not living with a concept of of imminency the axe it says in verse 10 matthew 3 10 the axe is already laid at the root of the trees i mean it's there <laughs> do you have that sense of doom i mean just picture the 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 axeman and he's standing there and he's holding the axe and it's ready to go he's got it laying there at the base of the tree he's measured up he's 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 got it sighted and he's ready just to pull it back and start chopping his winnowing fork is in his hand. That's how imminently this is. It says in verse 12. Okay? Hoping that we're gathering this. In Mark 1, it's called the Gospel of God. In Mark 1, it's called the Gospel of God. Let's turn over to Mark 1 and take a look at it. Mark chapter 1. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here it's called the gospel of God. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. And then verse 15 further defines what is the gospel of God. And saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, the good news. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon. And anyway, we're going to get into the fishers of men here coming up. But he was preaching the gospel of God, the good news of God. And um, fulfilled time. Presently arriving kingdom. Change of thinking required. Walking by faith expected. Good news. All right. I'm hoping that we can gather this not in an evangelism sense, but in a preparation for kingdom sense. <laughs> um, if it communicates. If it's not, uh, if we're not distracted by... Um, 
words such as believe? Have we successfully demonstrated that believers need to believe? That regenerate people need to walk by faith? That good news is good news, not limited to um, salvation information? That good news is uh, information that is uh, supplied for blessing that may not be limited to believing on Jesus Christ and, and, and becoming saved? Okay. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay. There's so much more to it than just simply accepting Christ as your Savior and passing out of death into life. Unfortunately, that's where this gets limited to by the, uh, really by an approach that kind of makes salvation the goal of everything, right? <laughs> I mean, isn't that all there is in some people's minds for the Christian way of life? You get saved, you get somebody else saved, they get somebody else saved, and we just kind of expand this, uh, you know, this networking of saved people who are desired to go get people saved. There's more than that. Recognize the dispensational pattern. Recognize the plan of God unfolding. Recognize fulfilled time. Recognize the imminent arrival of the kingdom. Change your activities. Start walking by faith. See, I think uh, maybe the the best one of this is in the in the Luke account, as we see specific people asking specific questions. Turn over with me and let's look at this because this is not just this is not evangelism. This is not bringing people to Christ. This is not taking unbelievers and getting them regenerate. In um, Luke 3, in verse 10, the crowds were questioning us, saying, then what shall we do? See, if, if, if this was all about evangelism, then John the baptizer's message would be like Paul's to the Philippian jailer. When he says, what shall I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not what he says. What then shall we do? He would answer to them, say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. Okay? Are we, are we, are we catching the drift here? When we're talking about sharing cloaks, and we're talking about sharing food, we're not dealing with evangelism activities. You can't share cloaks to receive eternal life. You can't share food with a hungry brother and by virtue of your sharing food, receive eternal life and, and be transferred from darkness into life and, and become regenerate. This is not a, a personal salvation passage. This is not an evangelism context. This is a repentance con context. This is a warning context of believers that are not walking by faith that are not mindful of the Father's unfolding plan. And some tax collectors came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? See, they came to be baptized. They're already believers. They want to identify with this coming kingdom. And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. So stop the, uh, the graft. Stop the, uh, the uh, skimming of the taxes, you know. 
If the tax is two denarius, then charge two denarius and turn it over to Rome. Don't tell them that the tax is four denarius and then turn two over to Rome and keep two for yourself. Now, is that is that a salvation passage? Is this how unbelievers are going to receive eternal life and become regenerate by ethical financial practices? No. Nothing in this is dealing with evangelism. This is a warning to believers with respect to the coming kingdom and the fact that their life is not a biblical life. Their life as they're living it now is not consistent with God's righteousness. They have failed to be transformed by the renewing of their mind and they have been as conformed as you can be conformed to the cosmos system. And so the Baptist is saying, you need a change of thinking. This kingdom is imminent and you're not walking as citizens of the kingdom. So, and then uh, the soldiers is the last illustration of it there. And do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely. Be content with your wages. Okay. None of those is a recipe for getting saved. This entire incident is not a salvation evangelism process. And so when we talk about the gospel of God, when we talk about the message that, John, that Jesus was preaching, when he is urging their repentance, he is not outlining a mechanism by which unbelievers can receive eternal life. He is warning believers with time being fulfilled with the plan of God, um, with the, uh, the, the weeks of Daniel's prophecy, with the other timetables that we have in prophetic scripture, that the time being fulfilled, this kingdom is at hand. And so when it says repent, it's a change of thinking. When it says believe in the gospel, that is place faith and confidence in the good news. See, don't limit good news to salvation information. That's all we're trying to say on this. Thirdly, the twelve will carry this message forth when he sends them out. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. He's going to send the twelve out. They're going to carry this message with them as they go in their early training ministry. And um, the twelve are called here, including Judas. And he began, um, he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. Gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Judas was given authority over unclean spirits, even though he's not regenerate. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt. Now, instructions are going to be a little bit different later in the ministry. And we'll talk about each of these events when they take place. To wear sandals, and he added, uh, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that, every, that men should repent. They went out and preached, repent. They went out and preached, repent. They did not 
euangelizomai, they did not evangelize. They went and preached a message of repentance. And when they were rejected, they shook the dust off their feet and they moved on. It's going to be uh, repeated again in the Great Tribulation. The two witnesses will arise. They're going to be presenting their message. Many will reject them as well. So they went out and preached that men should repent. They were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Doesn't say they were leading anybody to Christ. Doesn't say this was an evangelism ministry. It was a, a, a repentance preaching ministry. Point D. A time will come when this repentance message will be concluded. A time will come when this repentance message will be concluded. When this stage of Jesus Christ's ministry draws to a close. And he tells them so. And a very clear transition. And from this point on, he starts to prepare them for something else. Starts to prepare them for the crucifixion. Matthew chapter 11. He began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Past tense. Did not repent. Time's up. The repentance message was being given. They did not repent. We're done with that message now. See. Ah, you'll notice part of this rebuke. Um, oh, I just love chapter 11 so much. When uh, John sends out the word, are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? We're going to deal with that. That is not a weak sister lack of faith question. Um, verse 7, as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? You know, why he had crowds following him in his day. Why was he so popular? Now, why is Christ popular? Why are the crowds going to him? Why are the crowds starting to leave him like they left John? You going out there for the entertainment value? A reed shaken by the wind? A, a man dressed in soft clothing? A prophet? Yes, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Preparing the way. Warning believers to repent is preparing the way. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. A dispensational understanding of these things then becomes important to recognize that for all of his greatness, John the Baptist was still a dispensation of the Jews prophet. And even though he was the greatest from that dispensation, kingdom of heaven is something else altogether. Notice, what shall I compare this generation? Verse 16, like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to other children and say, we played the flute for you, you did not dance. We sang a dirge, you did not mourn. See, the crowds always expect to call the shots. See, we're playing a happy song, you should be dancing. We're playing a sad song, you should be mourning. You have to dance to our tune. See, we're the fiddler, dance to our tune. We're the drummer. The crowds, and they're not content with anything. They weren't content with John. They aren't content with Jesus. John came neither eating or drinking. They say he has a demon. Remember, John was a teetotaler under a Nazarite vow for his entire life. 
Never had his hair cut. Could not consume alcohol. They say, well, he has a demon. He's got to be out of his mind. What kind of a nutcase is it that won't even drink a beer every once in a while? See, and they just totally write him off as being, as being uh, a religious fanatic. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. They weren't happy with that either. Remember, Jesus Christ sat down with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners and all kinds of things. Eating, drinking. He was not under a Nazarite vow. He was not forbidden alcohol and the things there. In fact, he deliberately participated in those things as a contrast to John and as an outreach to these individuals. They say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. <laughs> you can't win. If you, if you abstain from alcohol, they think you're nuts. If you take, you know, if you sit down and drink a beer with somebody, they think, oh, you're just a drunk. They're not content with any of this. Wisdom is vindicated.